If you want Indonesian merchants to have access to fintech, the first thing you have to do is lower the cost to get in the system. And every device costs maybe like $200 roughly at the time. So I wanted to replace that with QR. How do you use the cultural cues for that country and then use technology to then make it more efficient? Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. So today we're talking with a serial entrepreneur who's using social enterprise to drive personal and economic transformation through communities across Southeast Asia. Clark, I am very curious to learn about the world of fintech. It's something that I don't know a lot about, particularly in the context of emerging markets. But I have to say, I'm actually also really curious to get to know a bit more about our guest He's been a CEO in his mid-20s. Um, I want to know what fuels him, what motivates him, what drives him. There's a lot for me to learn, given that I'm the opposite of him. I've been really quite risk-averse professionally. Whether he's a long-haul driver or being an entrepreneur or making sure that communities drive business and enterprise and businesses drive communities in terms of how they co-develop each other. So I think the breadth of someone who's not just an entrepreneur, but understands a little bit of a bigger picture about paying it forward and paying it back, I think it's going to be a pretty cool session. Fantastic. Clark, please tell us, um, who is our guest today? Our guest today is Aldi Hario Pertomo. He's currently on the board of eFishery, and eFishery is transforming aquaculture in Southeast Asia. And transforming is really what Aldi's career has been all about. He's the former CEO of GoPay the digital payments division of GoCheck. Prior to GoPay, Aldi was CEO and co-founder of Mapan, a fintech company that provided a way to pool financial buying power of millions of low-income families in Indonesia to give them better access to goods and services. He is a transformer and a redefiner. Aldi, thank you so much for joining us here on Redefiners. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Aldi, let's start at the beginning. You have had a really fascinating career um, to get to GoPay. And as Clark mentioned, you've done a myriad of things. Yes, you've worked for sort of more conventional organizations like BCG, but you've also ridden motorbikes across Cambodia, Vietnam, and Indonesia looking for microfinancing. Tell us in your own words a little bit about the journey to get to GoPay. Yeah, so I mean, I started my career actually as a consultant at Ernst Young in California. Um, we had a security division where we would like do white hacking and do penetration testing for companies. But at some point, I actually joined a business plan competition in Stanford, and um, we got to the semifinals. And my competition, I thought, had a better idea. And the competition was a company called Kiva.org, and mm -hmm. Kiva was giving loans, peer-to-peer uh, -peer loans, to people. And this was just the beginning. So I ended up actually knocking on Kiva's door. 
and initially volunteering. But after watching a movie called Motorcycle Diaries, which probably was the movie that changed my yes. life. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I thought, wow, like I was, I was in my early 20s. It was such a cool idea to just travel across the region. So I told my boss, hey, could I go to Southeast Asia and look for microfinance banks for Kiva? Because at the time, Kiva did not have anybody on the ground. And I thought that being Southeast Asian, like being there and actually explaining to the microfinance banks on how this all worked, how to get money from the web was like super new in 2005 or six, right? So we did it. I would go from country to country on my motorbike and knock on doors and look for microfinance banks that we could essentially put on the web. I felt that was the first moment where I took a big leap in my life. And how, how did it feel? I mean, because were you familiar, obviously you're familiar with Indonesia, were you familiar with the rest of the region? Was it nerve wracking? Talk us through it a bit. You know, it looked a lot easier in the movies, you know, like sleeping on a, on a tent. <laughs> it was like, it was painful. Really? But you know, it was fun. I thought it was, uh, it was, you learn so much just by being on the ground. And, and I felt like there was moments that you forget how far we are in California compared to where Vietnam was. So I, would, I went to this microfinance bank and I had my laptop and I said, okay, I want to give you guys money like from the US. And they asked me like, where's your money, right? So then I said, it, I pointed to the laptop where I had a stored version of the website and you, you can see that $3,000 is yours. And then somebody picked up my laptop and shook it. Like, no way. No money. No, way. no money. To, to get the money out. Yeah. It's like, no money, no money. And I was like, oh my God. Okay, okay, fine, fine. I had to start over. So for me, like those moments like, really helped me understand. I learned a lot about yeah. credit. Like I was an engineer, so I didn't understand a lot about fintech. I learned so much about credit scoring, about risk scoring that really helped build the foundation for my fintech career later on. And Kiva was just filled with like these, you know, people who were amazing. Like they were like ex-PayPal product managers, like Premal, my, my, my mentor, my boss was like a product manager at PayPal, early one. And Ben actually that I met at Kiva is like basically my co-founder for all of my companies. So he was with me at Kiva from 2006 and then he worked with me at Mapan and then he worked with me at GoPay, you know. And so how did you then go from Kiva to Mapan? What, what was the step in between? Everybody needs to impress their in-laws, right? So I needed a real job after Kiva. Honestly, I, I just actually wanted to get married. My in-law you know, wanted me to have like a real job, right? Like working for a startup, doing loans on a motorbike didn't seem like a real job that could feed his daughter who was working at JP Morgan at the time, you know? So, so I had to like, and then uh, I, <laughs> so, so. So you needed a job to compete with her or yeah, to be equal with her. To be at least on par, right? So I had to do something, yeah. right? Like so to do, some, do something with your life, basically. Right? It was like, my parents were happy as well. So I, I got a job at BCG and then yeah, I got married and I left like within a year, I think after that. So to start Mapan. Uh, because, you know, I just saw such a huge opportunity um, in, in one of my projects. In one of my projects in BCG, I actually worked on mobile money in, in Pakistan. And I saw how, you know, you could actually use um, community to be the foundation for, for, for a fintech company, right? Mm -hmm. Because in every village, there's this woman, usually, almost always a yeah. woman, like, and um, who is an influencer. So they would be the ones where everybody goes to, to uh, let's say there's this lady that actually has a shop in front of a school. Moms would put their kids in her house or in her shop, you know, leave her there when they're working and whatnot. You know, if you can leave your kids there, you trust them. So when you sell, when that woman sells you something, it's not like selling. It's like she's trying to tell you what product is good, what product is. She's know. advising you. Exactly. Right. right? And, and so I wanted the Mapan company to be based on that community spirit. Now, I then had to figure out what products like to sell. Right. So obviously we started with the basics. We did. We did payments, so we started doing like bill payments, right, to help the community pay their bills because she is the person that they trust to handle their money, right? They're very simple, right? That scaled up very quickly. Mm -hmm. We became one of the largest 
payment companies, you know, bill payment companies in, in Indonesia. And then what was interesting was that we, we found this unique model when she asked me, hey, Eid is coming up. It's like our Christmas, right? And, I, and every Eid, you know, when we cook the beef curry or rendang, uh, we have to take turns because we can't afford to buy the pot. The pot is like literally $30, but they can't afford to buy it. Uh, so they have to take turns cooking it. So the person who cooks it first has like seven-day-old like curry. Uh. So she's like, can you figure out some way like to, to help us buy this better? And I asked her like, well, how do you do it? So I went to the factory and found that you could buy the pot for about 15 bucks, right? And yeah. I said, okay, I could sell it to you for like 20 or 25. And she said, well, that's still not enough because I actually right now pay $10 a month for six months. Wait, wait a minute, that's like $60. This is way cheaper. Well, I needed the financing. So she could only pay $10 a month. She never had any ability to pay immediately more than $10. So she said, wait a minute, in the next village over, there is actually a rotating savings group where women, every Wednesday, they would go and there'd be like five women and everybody would put in $5 a month. Mm -hmm. And then there would be $25 collected and every month there's a raffle where you draw the woman's name and one person gets the pot. She said, can you literally give them a pot as opposed to money? Yeah. And then I was like, wait, that's brilliant. So I went and got the pots. I literally went to this village town hall. Uh, my investors were all there. They were like, wanted to see me. So I actually sold like a, you know, like a traveling pot salesman. Hey, ladies, you know, I'm here with the pot. <laughs> oh, when you know that water heater that you have at home, when you run out of gas, you have to go down from the mountain. I have electricity. So I have an electric water heater so you don't have to go down and buy gas, right? So, and then it worked, right? We started selling these goods, these white goods. Think about like Sears on on credit using this rotating savings group. Mm. So it really felt like, you know, in the U.S. when Sears was coming up and people were starting to buy these white goods, that's what we were doing. But instead of using credit cards, we used this credit system that was already in the community called an Arisan. And, and we, went, we went from one village to another and, and so forth. And we, yeah, we ended up having 3 million members, actually. We were the world's largest, um, I guess, rotating savings group collective, uh, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. So just, Arisan, if you just keep going, this is a collective credit system in essence. Correct. Right? Correct. So, yeah, so the way it works is that you have five members, like, let's say, A, B, C, D, E, and everybody puts in, let's say, $5 each, and you have $25 a month. And then the first person that gets the pot, let's say A, means that she gets everything on credit, right? Because she gets the money up front. But every month, then another person gets it. So it's not like gambling. Everybody will get their turn. Within five months, all of five of us will have a pot. So it's a great way to kind of balance between savings and credits. Because in, in the West, you know, in the West, you always see, okay, there's, there's credit and there's cash or savings and credit, right? But Arisan is actually something in the middle because mm. you, it's kind of a randomized opportunity, whether you're getting credit or, or if you, if you're actually in the middle, if you're the one that gets in month three, then you're literally doing half credit and half savings, right? And this is beautiful because it enables us to credit score because we have, we know who's like trustworthy without actually taking credit risk, right? Yeah. And it's a better way to finance the lower income population because you prevent them from taking, you know, credit that they can't afford to pay. Huge bets, right? Yes, exactly. Right. But any, any, um, so it's also almost like the, the, a mutual union, mutual, mutual shareholder credit union. But does E ever, what about community resentment or that A gets the first pot and he has to wait did you, do we have any pressure on the community trust by the time we get to E? Did you have any issues here? Uh, 
Not really. I think the, the nice thing about this is actually this behavior has already existed since like maybe like at least a thousand years, right? In Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So so the key to I think the key to any fintech product or anything that I've designed is actually how do you use the cultural cues for that country, right? And and then mm-hmm. and then use technology to then make it more efficient. And was there an opportunity to expand Mapan outside of Indonesia? What what then what then made you go from Mapan to GoPay? Honestly, one of the things that I really enjoyed in the last 10 years is actually redefining industries, right? And like how the industry structure changed and whatnot. And at, at some point, Mapan actually got a lending license, right? And, and, but I realized mm-hmm. that in order for us to really change the landscape of the, the entire Indonesian financial sector, I need, we needed to make a big move, right? Okay. So at that point, my, my classmate in, in business school had already started Gojek, which was redefining the transportation industry, right? So he did a ride hailing for motorcycles, which now is the largest app in the country. And I said, well, let's actually mm. consolidate a lot of the big players and make a big play where we actually build an ecosystem so that we can actually change the sector, right? So the key to changing a sector is like to have enough momentum from multiple large players, like tech players in particular, that enables the existing players like banks to plug in, uh, customers to see the benefit of the ecosystem maturing, right? Versus like waiting one by one. Because like if Mapan had continued Mitrons, which was like the stripe of Indonesia, and let's say Kartuku, mm-hmm. which was like the square of Indonesia, had continued separately. We would all have grown, but we would not have been able to integrate and create what became GoPay. So in like December 2017, which is probably a life-defining moment for me, we bought all those three companies. And they were sizable companies at the time, right? And then we made it into GoPay, right? There was a press release there, and I became the CEO of GoPay, which is like managing this entire behemoth. And I had pressure to then change the landscape of the ecosystem uh, of, of fintech in Indonesia. And yeah, that was, uh, that was how we moved from Mapan to Gope. I love the thinking big and bringing these three companies together, but that's risky. Yes. Was there not, and, and look, this is an, you know, an Iranian asking you, right? For me, it's you become a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, that kind of thing. Was there not pressure either from your wife, your in-laws, your parents to do something that's a safer bet? Combining Mapan, Kartuku, and Mitrans, which was lending offline payments and online payments was scary because it was such a big bet. So there was huge pressure on, on, on us. I mean, yeah, I mean, the safer bet would have been just to continue Mapan, right? Like continue growing and we had like a good customer base. It was all growing. But I don't know. I mean, I've always like uh, lived my life based on what I wouldn't regret more, right? And I thought that I had so much experience from Kiva. I had, fin- I had payment experience. And so I felt like, okay, I, I'm blessed to be in the place where I can provide access to these services. And if I don't do it mm. and I don't bring my friends to do it together, we, we would never do it. We would never be able to do it. Yeah. If you want Indonesian merchants to have access to fintech, the first thing you have to do is lower the cost to get in the system. And mm-hmm. every device costs maybe like $200 roughly at the time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to replace that with QR. And then, you know, I told my team, you know, we want to grow, right? And we want to get to like a million transactions by the end of the year. You're nuts. Who grows a thousand X in a year, right? Mm. But, we, you know, obviously we made a plan. And, and actually, honestly, my team just amazingly blew it off. We actually exceeded a million transactions a day by December. Wow. A day. A million transactions a day. Wow. Yeah, we went from a thousand to a million, like within less yeah. than a year. You had the trust of the woman with the curry pot. Yes. Which is personal. It's 101. Yes. So to go from a thousand to a million transactions... Uh, you have to go to the regulator and say, we're going to change the whole industry, which is what you said is what, so exciting for you. 
that's a different level of trust, and that's not about personal relationships around the fire. How difficult was that, and how long did that take? Honestly, actually, it was about personal relationships. So, so here's the thing, right? Ever since I was at Kiva, I had to interact with the financial regulator in Indonesia. So, so, so I have actually built a reputation of, as the guy who wants to bring financial inclusion. Like, like even since I was in my, my early 20s, and by the time I was Gopay, I was like in my early 30s, right? I, I, I wanted to be, and, and I did this with Mapwan, so I had built this track record. So I have people in the central bank who actually ended up, literally, they, in the room, they vouched for my reputation. Hmm. Hmm. So again, it's part of the community because I took him to the mom. Actually, the guy went to the lady that I sto- spoke to. He actually went to the lady. So it was I like, love it. It's all so connected. He went to the lady. The regulator goes to the village. I love it. Yeah. He went to the lady like five years ago. And then I sit in a crossroom. He's the one regulating this payment thing. And I said, oh my God, you're going to run this? Okay, let's do it. He worked with me like five years before on Mapan. And he was the guy that helped like kind of shape the whole industry. So with me, the bank eventually got us the approval and everything and and now, you know, now the QR is the national standard for payment. The QR that we propose. Oh. And oh. there's about 60 million merchants today that are using that QR. So, Aldi, why did you step down? I mean, you change the landscape. You set the market standard. You know, GoPay is doing fantastically well. But you stepped down as CEO last year um, to take a sabbatical. Why is that? What, what's, tell us about your theory on why everyone should do that once in a while. Well, I mean, okay, so first of all, that first year was intense. The second year got even more intense because we went international. So basically every year, you know, became big. And we just reached a huge milestone um, that year where we just finished like a multi-billion dollar fundraising round for GoPay and Gojek, right? Gojek at the time was a decacorn mm-hmm. and GoPay was a big part of it, right? So I, I effectively had, had exceeded the goal that I had set. My last product, which was a social product, was already launched. That was like my thing that I wanted a community product for GoPay. And yeah, we had like, we were basically now the number one player in payments. So I started to think about my life, right? And uh, yeah. okay, this is kind of personal, but I think it's important for people to know. So I was uh, with my kids in a, in a swimming class where the teacher was also a psychiatrist, and we were doing this card game. And um, we were kids were supposed to match the cards with the people that, in the house. And my wife was matched with an angry expression because he yells at them all the time, right? And then... <laughs> My grandparents was with like a fun expression because they give them candy all the time, right? And then I was matched with a plant, which meant that like the teach- they said like, well, that means that your kids may not be as close to you because you were always like far, right? Because I was like working a lot. And I mean, like, I think the thing about people forget about these crazy growth, unicorn or decacorn companies is that you, you really do work nonstop and you travel a lot. So I realized, wait a minute, like I think, okay, if I've gone to where I wanted to be, right, why, why should I still be there? Why don't I take time for myself? And literally become a full-time dad for a year, mm. right? And mm. I think that my wife, honestly, had supported me throughout this time. Like, I could not have been an entrepreneur without my wife having insurance at, like, JP Morgan, McKinsey, and then Google. She works for big companies, right? So I get good insurance so I can be an entrepreneur. Um, so mm. I thought, well, it was my time to repay the debt and actually take care of the kids. So I, 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 I did it. I stepped down. It was a, it was a crazy call. Like, everybody thought I was mad, right? But... I don't know. I just always like to do the unexpected. There you go. At some point, you were literally a long-haul truck driver. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I was working for like a so Cummins engine company. So, you know, the, yeah. so we, we, they, I was an intern there. And uh, you know, I had to build like a simulation. So they would allow me to drive some of their, like, some of their trucks. So I, I, I have a lot of familiarity with, like, with the trucking industry through Cummins. So they, had, they gave me a scholarship uh, through Purdue. Uh, so I would take like, I would go to, I would go to work uh, for... Uh, six months, 
and then I would go to school for for six months and and go to work. So I, I would have like these jobs to get me through college. Got it. So this concept of time work, time study, time work is was embedded early on and has kept going. I find that really fascinating. That's a good point, actually. Well, yeah. We talk about redefining moments. What do you pick as your redefining moments in your life so far? So the first one was the Che Guevara movie when I decided to move. That was uh, actually, yeah, that was actually around October 20, 2006, I think. And then when I decided to start Mapan, uh, which was uh, my wife's birthday, June 24th, uh, 2009. And then when me and my buddies built GoPay, joined, Go, joined up to become GoPay, that was December 2017. And then, actually, yeah, last year, right, when I left Gopay, which was December 2021, right? So, hmm. uh, yeah, it's like four years or so in between them. So every four years, my life would just completely dramatically change, uh, which I think is kind of fun. Yeah, it keeps it exciting. They say behind every successful person is a surprise mother-in-law. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps you might have done that from the, from the motorcycle to uh, taking time to be a father. Have you ever gone back and done the cards with the children again? Oh my God, yes. Now they're like, now I'm like the fun dad. Like my, my wife said, you successfully rebranded yourself from work, work, work to beach, french fries, and ice cream. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that. My wife says when we go, uh, my life is on, on the water. I, I spent time sailing with our now grown children. And she said, it's not fair because there are no snacks in our house. We have very healthy household in terms of what we eat and drink. But on the boat, it took a little while to realize that I had some things that weren't so healthy. And she said, you can't bait the boat and get the children excited. That's not fair, okay? So same with you. It's not fair. Um, you, you made some big decisions. You're, very, you're an independent thinker, clearly. But um, talk about mentors and, and, and particularly uh, Muhammad Yunus. Tell us about the mentors in your life to make some of these big decisions. Yeah, no, this is important, actually. So... Um, I, I think one of the things that I learned about mentors is uh, you, you get lucky, right? So Professor Yunus, my, my, I guess, my idol, right? And then actually invested in my company and he actually ended up sending one of his protégés to become my mentor full-time for six months to like make sure this kid doesn't mess up. So he sent this guy whose name is Abdul Matin. He's a, he was the CEO of Garmin Turkey and he was about to retire and he said he got a call from Professor Yunus and said, hey, you know, help take care of this kid in Indonesia, make sure he doesn't mess up. So he flew to Indonesia for six months. Wow. And, and he taught me on how to operate, on how to run an organization, how to build a culture. He was such a guy that puts his heart into it and focuses on impact and, and, and really cares about the community. And I felt that having him um, really improved our operations because we were like, we were not tight. But it's hard to be community mm -hmm. and tight. He was able to show us that you can be both community focused, but also rigorous in operation. And, and yeah. that was important. With your mentors like Abdul Mateen, were they mainly cheerleaders? Was it all bells and whistles and ice cream? Would he give it to you straight? Aldi, you're making mistakes. Like, stop it. Aldi, you're an idiot. That doesn't work this way. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. Have you been paying it forward? Do you mentor others? Actually, I do, right? I mean, what was interesting was I actually started mentoring even before I was in Gope. So, um, you know, I've, I actually, before I picked fintech as an industry, I actually wanted to try to change healthcare as an industry. I had a business plan with my business school classmates on healthcare, but I, I didn't have any qualifications, so that failed. But then my junior high school classmate wanted to start a healthcare health tech company, and he has a healthcare background, and Jonathan. And when he came to me with this idea and we talked about it, 
uh, you know, I would say, I said, oh, I'll help you. And that eventually became Halodoc. Halodoc, uh, I don't know if you know, it's actually the largest telemedicine company in Indonesia. We have 20 million users, right? And so when we, and I, you know, I wasn't in the driver's seat, right? But I was with him and, and just watching that company grow, like, I think I learned probably more than he did because even though I was giving these wisdoms, but I also learned about healthcare. I learned about a different industry. I learned about whether the lessons that I had learned in Gope and the solutions I gave him would work or not. So I think as an entrepreneur, mentoring somebody else in another industry actually helps you because you will learn whether your solution works or not in a different context. Aldi, before we move off the topic of mentorship, I'm actually really curious to take Clark's question and pose it to him. Um, So Clark, you may or may not know, has just stepped down after 10 super successful years as as CEO. And uh, behind every successful person is a set of successful um, uh, or useful mentors. So Clark, who was yours? And was there ever one who also said to you, you know, this is nonsense, stop this crap? Yeah, there are a couple. One is uh, one of my older brothers who's a very successful entrepreneur. I'd go test these ideas of, of moves, moving, leaving Europe to go back to America. No, stay, which I did, uh, <clears throat> and test these ideas. The second was a, a guy who's quite well known, David Rubenstein, who, who co-founded oh. Carlyle Group. And my learning was wherever private capital goes, which is a higher risk that public capital won't fund, service businesses follow. So I followed their funds and other funds around the world. If they went to Africa, they went to infrastructure. They were, you know, go follow that. And the third was a guy named Steve Hemsley, who uh, is now chairman of United Health Group, but 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 was CEO for many years. And one time I went and asked him about a difficult decision I had to make, and he got angry and he said, "You're looking for validation. You know what to make the decision. Why the heck are you in my office wasting my time? Because you already know the decision. Either make your own decisions." And you can come back for more help or don't come back. That's amazing. You need to be independent as well. Right? There's, a, there's a balance. I agree. We'll be right back with Aldi after a quick break with Jamie Heckinger, a managing director with Russell Reynolds Associates in our Washington, D.C. office. We all want to work in an organization with a good culture, one where employees feel valued and actions and outcomes match stated corporate values. Organizational leaders spend countless hours on this topic of culture through town halls, one-to-one meetings, and employee engagement surveys. But what if the feedback and data they receive don't reflect reality? A recent study by researchers at the MIT Sloan School of Management and London Business School found little to no correlation between stated company values and employee perceptions of the organization. The problem is that standard employee surveys we use today often fail to uncover deep-seated issues. So if we can no longer rely on traditional tools and models to measure and manage culture, how can we uncover what's really going on? We've come up with a new culture analytics approach that we call the Culture MRI. This methodology focuses on three key areas to uncover employees' deep attitudes and behaviors to create a complete, multidimensional view of cultural alignment across the organization. First, the Culture MRI focuses on psychological safety to ensure employees understand that their answers will not be traceable to them individually. Second, randomized responses bundle sensitive statements with neutral odds-based statements such as dice rolls or relatives' birth dates. And third, advanced statistical techniques use algorithms to translate survey data into actionable information. 
Using this new culture MRI approach, leaders can quickly pinpoint both where and why culture problem hotspots may be emerging. To learn more about how you can better measure and manage culture in your organization, go to russellreynolds.com slash culture. And now back to our conversation with Aldi. Aldi, what you have done with your companies is really innovative, truly innovative. You've, you've set the standard. Um, there is, however, maybe a misconception that you know, innovation primarily originates in the US or Europe and in sort of your developed uh, countries. But as we've seen, as, as you've been an example, there's a lot of innovation happening in countries around the world that perhaps don't get the attention that they rightly deserve. Do you agree with that and sort of tell us more about the innovation that you're involved in um, and would like to be involved in going forward? You, you know, you said you like to redefine industries. What, what's next? Where is it going to come from? So we combine basically Stripe, you know, which was Midtrans, Square, right? And then like Mapan was a lending company right? and a bank, like a neobank, right? Which I think is Chime, like all in one company. In the US, these combinations don't happen, I think, because like, you're much mm-hmm. more segmented. And then Halodoc as well. We have like a telemedicine company, a medicine delivery company, an insurance company, right? And even an offline vaccination like company, right? So like, I think these co- aggregation services in the emerging markets are needed because their infrastructure is so inefficient. So there's a lot of innovation that needs to be done that is very different. And finally, let me give you a really random company that just raised $90 million that I'm on the board of, e-fisheries, right? So we raised $90 million from Temasek SoftBank and Sequoia. And there's no other company in the world like it. What is it? What, mm-hmm. do, what do we do? Right? Like, so I met this guy like seven years ago and just like Halodoc, wanted to redefine the, the fish aquaculture growing industry. And we make a robot that feeds fish because we know when they're hungry. And so what it does is it makes the process of growing fish in a pond more efficient, like at least 50% more efficient than, than otherwise because everything's automated and you don't always feed. And for the, for the world, right, it will reduce the, the cost of carbon or climate for meat because fish is four times more efficient than beef. Indonesia is mm-hmm. number two in the world for producing fish already. And if we can automate this, like, then this company can become the largest fish producer in the world using technology, right? Like we have around 30,000 ponds. There's about two and a half million ponds in Indonesia. If we can grow that, it, it truly will change the way the world eats. Yeah. So, you know, the world is changing, I believe. I believe that people will start to see that countries like Indonesia can be the center of innovation, right? Yeah. So um, to answer your question more directly, what am I looking for next? Uh, I am actually in the middle of looking for that next industry, right? I, I do see myself as an entrepreneur. Like I, I do want to build something else, but I do want to do it in an industry that I can redefine, right? And, and, be, and be part of building an ecosystem together, not just me redefining it, but with a bunch of friends and a, a group of companies that want to change the landscape and for the better, like to give access yeah. to do something. Right? So yeah, I, I don't know yet. To be honest, I don't know yet. I, I'll, hopefully a year from now, you know, we'll, we'll find something and you can, you, can, you can hear about it somewhere. Aldi, we look at the volatility of the world. A couple of themes come out. Obviously, you've just touched on climate change and sustainability where the private sector over the last few years has finally said, we, we, you know, we have to do this. We met a CEO of a fertilizer company in Scandinavia who said there are only eight harvests left, eight autumns to harvest food before, before climate change is irreversible. And the other is talent. All of these leaders say, I need more people. 
and great people or retain great people to do the things I want to do. I think talent is more important than capital. I agree with you. So it is absolutely imperative that the world's smartest people work on the world's most important problems. Like it is, we can't wait. I mean, we can't just have everybody wait, make the next like dating app. You know I mean? I think like, look, I, you know, all due respect, in, in how the, we started the whole vaccination drive through the drive-thrus in Indonesia. And like, and we, we, and the movement that we started actually built 40 oxygen plants. So we moved from 60 oxygen plants to 100 because of like the oxygen movement that we created. And so these are massive changes that you can create commercial value and also social value. And I feel that if more Europeans, more Americans, you know, more people from abroad would help people from islands like in, in, in like a country like Indonesia, I think we could have a better distribution of talent. Because Indonesia has the second largest biodiversity in the world. If you help us solve climate change here, we will bring oxygen to the world. On that note, Aldi, just conscious of your time, we like to end each podcast session with some rapid fire questions. This is where we're going to ask you a series of five questions and we ask you to reply as quickly as possible. Are you ready? Sure. So the first one, who is your hero? Muhammad Yunus. Right answer. If you had to teach a class on one thing, what would you teach? Sociology. Sociology. Okay. Sociology, yeah, just like, commu- like why community is important, like why people should help each other. Yep. Please complete the following sentence. I wish everyone would. I wish everyone would see how important problems that we're solving in Indonesia are. Yeah. Love that. What's one important skill every person should have? Hmm. Kindness. It's not a skill, but I, would, I think if people were more kind to each other, I think the world would be a better place. I think the pandemic has somewhat made people less kind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the last one, what's the best thing that's happened to you this month, whether it's professional or personal? Mm. Um, well, I mean, honestly, like my, uh, my kids and I like went on this ice cream break and they were, they said, oh, Papa, Papa, why is Mama always missing out on this amazingly fun stuff? So I felt really good about that. <laughs> Aldi, this has been really an interesting chat. I wish we could keep going. But there are a couple of themes that we hear coming through. You start off by saying you learn by being on the ground. And by being on the ground, that may be uh, being on a motorcycle going village to village, or it may be going regulator to regulator, or it may be going investor to investor. But doing it yourself and looking in people's eyes and understanding what's going on in the ground. You also said use the cultural cues in each country to adapt what you're doing. Yours happen to have been uh, fintech and, and payments. But so often, particularly in the West, we take what is ours and what works and says, we're going to do it there. And having lived all around the world and worked myself, no, it's what is needed there that we can adapt from somewhere else. So look at the cultural cues. And also that you said you don't want to live your life on what you regret more. Don't live your life on what you regret more. Is a moment to pause. Seize the opportunity, but also don't have these fundamental regrets. And last, which is the plea we have at Russell Reynolds Associates, is the smartest people need to work on the toughest issues around the world. Listeners, follow Aldi. What is he going to do next? Because we got to go move to Southeast Asia and help him get there. But Aldi, enormous thanks and appreciation for a very fun and interesting discussion. No, thank you for having me. Thank you, Aldi. 
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.